Why is it we have such big cars? Well, we're, we're driven by policy. Those policies were accommodative of big cars. You got your fuel economy standards were in proportion to the vehicle footprint. And why is that? Because nobody gets reelected in America putting large people into small cars. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. Today, we welcome back to the show two returning guests, Kevin Book with Clearview Energy Partners and Liam Denning with Bloomberg Opinion. In mid-December, they sat down with Joseph Mikett to look back at the energy issues of 2023 that have had the most impact or staying power, including the decline in clean tech markets, how oil and gas companies are investing in clean energy, the growth in the electric vehicle markets, the impact of trade policy, and the politicization of energy issues, just to name a few. I'll turn it over to Joseph now for their review of 2023. Hello and welcome. What do we make about the developments in energy and climate that we've seen over the last year? Every year, the program here at CSIS um, does an does a, a end-of-year wrap-up podcast to try and take some of the stories, some of the themes that we've seen develop over the past 12 months, and and um, and see if we can come to some conclusions about what what uh what we should learn and talk a little bit about what we're going to do what we're going to see next year. I'm joined today by two fantastic repeat offenders in this exercise. Kevin Book is a senior advisor here at CSIS. He's also a principal at Clearview Energy Partners, and Liam Denning is an opinion columnist with uh, Bloomberg Opinion. Both of them, the two of them are leading scholars and thinkers in the world of energy, energy markets, and energy politics. And I'm really happy you're both joining us here today. It's good to be here. Good to be here. Now, the challenge with doing a year-end podcast is you have to record it a little bit before the end of the year. So contingent on there not being something really, really uh, explosive, pardon the use of the phrase, in energy markets over the next couple of weeks, I hope we can kind of have a fulsome discussion over all that's happened because it feels like it's been quite a bit. And yet, coming off of 2022, where energy markets were in total disarray, 2023 maybe signaled some return to calm as well. So I'd like to start the conversation maybe with Liam um, and kind of what you thought moved markets or didn't move markets in the past year in a way that might have surprised you. I think uh, one area I would focus on is there was not so much calm in uh, that area of the market called, uh, you know, broadly clean tech. Um, uh, just to throw out one number, the um, the uh, the Wilder Hill Clean Energy uh, Index, which peaked uh, round about the time uh, President Joe Biden uh, took office, uh, is down four fifths since then give or take, uh, and it fell again this year. Um, and what's interesting for me about that is a lot of that seems related to, well, one, you know, reversion to the mean in some respects because it ran up so strongly, um, but to uh, the rising cost of uh, financing, the, the rise in treasury yields especially, um, which I think has not only obviously made it difficult to finance certain projects with, I think, um, US offshore wind power being the, the poster child for that. Um, but also in a, in a sector that is, you know, A, 
uh, skewed quite heavily to upfront um, capex, uh, and which is still reliant on government policy to a large degree. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to do that stuff when rates are at zero, one percent, rather than four to five percent. And um, you know, we're still living with that um, today in terms of uh, valuations uh, and in terms of uh, you know project developers having to go back to the drawing board and say, you know, can I pencil this out? Um, I probably had wiggle room of maybe a hundred basis points, not three or four hundred basis points. What, what's the lo- what do you think is the long term implication of that dynamic? I, I mean, I completely agree. You see projects being canceled, drawn back, scaled down. Is this going to lead to a sort of a renaissance in cost discipline? And five years from now, we'll have a much more competitive energy set, clean energy sector. Or is it sort of saying, if you don't have cheap money, the energy transition is going to be really, really hard? I think you would just to follow on. I think you would hope so. Uh, it, you know, in one sense, the the clean tech sector is going through what the shale sector went through to some degree. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, there was a lot of free money in the sense of uh, zero interest rates, and then on top of that, um, you know, fiscal stimulus in terms of IRA subsidies and that sort of thing. And we know from the history of the shale industry what that tends to do is you get a lot of projects financed and a lot of companies starting up, which as soon as conditions worsen even a little bit, tend to fall away. So I think we are going to see consolidation. I do see it at this stage as more of a bump in the road than a wall. I would put it that way. Kevin, what are, what are your thoughts? Well, one of, the, one of the after effects of the bubble and the mania is a, a series of happy second owners. Uh, so this is not, I think, the diversification or the transition uh, for which uh, environmentalists have been asking. But oil and gas companies have money and uh, they buy things. They buy things when they're cheap and they make sense uh, for the portfolios they have. And so with that acquisition and diversification does become, you get a change in the, the entity. So an example I'll give, uh, ethanol plants built probably too expensively and too hastily in the boom times of the RFS uh, went bankrupt and were bought for dimes on the dollar by refiners who then became interested in the policy outcomes that uh, obtained to ethanol and, uh, and had interests that aligned with a, a product, a, a, an industry that they previously considered either competitive or even a rival. Uh, so you do get changes through these sort of boom-bust cycles when you get diversification acquisitions, although that's not really what we've been seeing lately. We've been seeing sort of the opposite of that. Um, and I would say that maybe to Liam's point, one of the, one of the tailwinds behind clean tech was this notion of a very prescriptive transition. that We were all going to be greening with clean tech. That was going to be the answer. And we had the, the president here in the United States. Uh, we had the European Union leadership taking Green Deal uh, forward. And now what we're seeing is that, you know, the, the policies that were driving this aren't able to overcome, yes, uh, the, the end of negative real interest rates and uh, the arrival of inflation. And uh, perhaps the, the more pragmatic transition policies that are being embraced far and wide. Well, that's an interesting point because um, one of the critiques of oil and, of the oil and gas industry is it's not investing enough in energy transition technologies. If you look at the IEA report published a couple of weeks ago or the massive consolidations within the industry itself, um, you know, do you, do, you know, where can that 
do we honestly expect that cash to go into energy in, in the way that like BP or Shell might have wanted to do five or 10 years ago? Or did we learn in 2023 that it's that that sort of diversification transition doesn't seem to be working out? Well, I think it was never realistic to expect oil caterpillars to turn into solar butterflies. No. Uh, but acquisition of BTUs at the right price is what these companies have always done and will continue to do. Liam, what do you think about that? I mean, do, do, you, do you expect to see that sort of a return to green energy investment? I think it will continue. Uh, you know, we, it, it, there have been setbacks, but I don't think it's ended entirely. You still, I still get press releases from an oil major every, you know, three or four weeks saying we've invested in this project or, or we've just done this buyout. Um, I think there is a realization that, uh, to Kevin's point, these are oil majors. They have a certain DNA, uh, which is written into their returns targets. And it's very hard for them to change that. I mean, if you're, if you're looking at a portfolio of potential projects to invest in and one has you know, a 20% return versus a 5% return that's maybe dependent on policy. You're going to choose the the 20% one. Um, I do think there will be some reshuffling of priorities in terms of clean tech investment. It's, it's quite clear that, you know, investing in, say, utility scale solar, which is, you know, which has attracted an enormous amount of capital it's very unclear to me what the edge is that oil companies are going to have in terms of extracting better returns from that sort of business. Whereas, you know, potentially carbon capture is, is more their kind of end of things. And also as a side benefit can potentially extend the life of their core business, extract more value from that. Um, uh, even for example, you know, lithium mining where there are, where there is some, or rather, direct lithium extraction, to use the proper term. Uh, there is some overlap there, at least in terms of leasing, permitting, drilling, that sort of thing. So I think we'll see more activity on on, on that front. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't think we're going to see particularly the US majors making a, a big push into offshore wind or something like that. Well, you know, I want to return to the original theme. And Kevin, you know, you... In our prep, you you sent something along which I thought was really interesting that the the world is now dealing with two, maybe three fairly significant conflicts. And yet markets are kind of quiet. What do, what should we make of that? What what do you what what do you draw out of there being pretty still an ongoing war in Ukraine, conflict in Gaza? Um Potentially a uh, um, uh, resource uh, conflict in Venezuela and Guyana, Venezuela and Guyana. Like, why don't markets? Why aren't they jittery? We're sleeping through supply risk, and actually sleeping through supply modification uh, as OPEC uh, repeatedly cuts to apparently no avail. There is a demand side to the equation, and it's real. And so, uh, to the extent that investors look out at China and see something that scares them on the demand side, uh, that has quite an effect when you have such a major consumer and major importer. Uh, it's impossible not to notice. But there are also, I think, uh, ritual underpricings that could be happening relative to the risks that we're facing. Uh, we have essentially two energy wars, and you named a potential third one, right? The biggest, uh, the, the biggest energy supplier in, uh, in, 
in, in Europe, basically at war with a country adjacent to the biggest energy market in the world. Uh, and you have uh, with the Middle East, all the major producers and their routes, their seaborne routes, increasingly looking fraught, actually, with the Houthis right now uh, projecting force against Israel-bound ships. And, and yet this doesn't seem to be pricing in at all. And uh, I think part of it is that we have, it took a lot to move the needle last year. And uh, what did we see? You know, that fool me once, shame on you. The market is waiting to see the supply interruption that hasn't happened yet. When's it going to happen? Liam? Uh, I, mean, I would agree with all of that. We've seen a buildup in spare capacity. Uh, I, I know there is this long-running narrative of, of um, the oil industry not uh, investing enough, but uh, as we see OPEC plus cutting back, particularly Saudi Arabia cutting back production, you know, the flip side of that is, okay, there's more spare capacity in the system. We've seen the uh, shale industry in the U.S., Emerge from a period of uh, you know, massive overinvestment and bankruptcies and financial distress to an industry that now looks, it, uh, by the day, I saw another deal announced this morning, um, more consolidated, better able to ride out the storms. Production is rising at a, at a hefty but not crazy pace. Um, and I think all of that tends to make people think, well, yes, I see these potential hotspots emerging, but the hottest of them in energy terms was clearly the Russia-Ukraine war. And seemingly the market seemed to have a hiccup and then digest it. And here we are. Fairly large hiccup. But right. But not, but, you know, you go back to news reports at the beginning of the war and we were looking at, you know, $200 oil and, and that sort yeah. of thing. And remarkably, I was looking at the, the data this morning you know, gas prices are back down to pre-Ukraine conflict levels, even in Europe, right? Where that's not necessarily all a positive story. There's been a lot of deindustrialization and loss of productivity, but there the the price signal isn't showing you that you're in this like sort of new regime of scarcity there. I think just to add, I think there is um there's an element here, and I don't really know the answer to this, but uh, it, there's an element of confusion, which is that looking back is maybe not as good a guide as it used to be. And I'm thinking particularly of, uh, you know, we tend to hear constantly about the level of oil inventories. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think the way we thought about oil inventories on land maybe 10 or 15 years ago, it's a different, it is a different world now. Um, you know, the U.S. is a net energy exporter. Uh, we have, you know, it's, it's accepted that we have vastly more uh, reserves in place than we did, than we were thought to have back then. Um, you know, China has become a much bigger and rather opaque factor in terms of its level of strategic stocks and the role of its refining industry. Uh, so that just, I think, makes it harder for people to judge where we are at any given moment compared to how things used to run. The the mergers you mentioned, although, I mean, you know, 10 barrels walk into a merger and eight walk out. Uh, there's a rationalization that tends to happen with the high grading and optimization. There are other tightening factors at work, and demand is relentlessly charging ahead. So the uh, the the calm that we see now is vulnerable. The the spare capacity that's the buffer uh, to this potentially turbulent world is actually resident in the same area that could be exposed to geostrategic risks. So where do those barrels go when they have to come out to the world? Well, through the Strait of Hormuz. 
right? Through through the Suez Canal, through through the, the Gulf of Aden. I, these are going to be problems if we actually run into them that I think, again, we may be underpricing because of past experience. It's very easy to have a recency bias. Anyone who doesn't is lying. <laughs> Um, but what does change, right? So we find ourselves at a place where uh, the demand, you know, sort of demand uncertainty, take oil, natural gases, demand uncertainty for the future is enormous. For oil, it's smaller on percentage terms, but it's still, you know, if you take a credible high end and a credible low end for the next decade, you get 10 million barrel spread or something like that. Um, what do you, you know, at what point... Let me see if I can find a better way to phrase this. Liam says that the, the past may not be the best guide toward evaluating risks in the future. And I wonder, Kevin, what you think about that same question when we are at a time where it's not super clear how quickly the energy transition will proceed, how quickly EVs will take a bite out of uh, oil demand, uh, how there's potentially a decoupling between economic growth and and demand, at least in the like fossil side of the system that could really upset our intuitions about security going forward. Well, we've had a long trend of energy intensity of GDP falling, continues to fall, oil intensity of GDP falling, and EVs very clearly take a bite. You know, every million EVs on the road in the US, 30,000 barrels per day disappear, uh, in theory, if they're used the way the LDVs they replace were being used. Uh, but then you you also really do have to consider how much of those trends are, are continuous. We've There was a great headline this year. I, it may have been The Economist or something. It was like, uh, from the from the Uber rich to the Uber driver was the point of the headline. And the idea was that the everyman, uh, the regular Uber driver is driving EVs. But actually, there's nothing regular about an Uber driver. Someone with that much v VMT, someone who drives that much is very unusual, right? That's someone for whom the fixed cost premium is worth it because you have the variable cost delta you can exploit to benefit. That is not the mass market moment. We haven't hit the mass market moment in a lot of places for this big transition technology. So I, I would also say that you know, a lot of the questions about what we're doing on climate are starting to go from you know, panic and crisis vocabulary to, well, now we're going to need a Band-Aid. I don't want to use the geoengineering word this early in the conversation, but this year, if, there's, if there was something that happened this year, that struck me, it, was, it would be that the, the idea got normalized. As recently as James Hansen writing a paper that said, yeah, we're going to have to do this for a little while to correct the fact we're overshooting. You know, this is the original Mr. Climate Crisis himself. Uh, and so uh, this is, I think, a, a moment that takes us closer to a more pragmatic look at transition. Uh, I don't, whether you call it a moral hazard or a, a reconsideration of the factors available at transition, once you start interventions at that level, whether they be five or 10 years out, I think the pace of things might change. And as we start talking about the, the, the life of hydrocarbons as we know it, we may be talking about a very different future. Yeah. I mean, that definitely moves us away from the prescriptive transition that you were talking about, right? If you can break the relationship between total cumulative greenhouse gas emissions and global warming, this, the state space in which you can operate gets a lot larger and and still you can still kind of maintain climate safety. I completely agree with you that there's been a sort of growing shift in public and elite opinion about geoengineering. There was the White House report from earlier this year. Um, and eventually the idea that 1.5 degrees centigrade is a tenable global warming target 
is, I mean, it'll have, it'll be a quarter of a degree in the rear view mirror before anybody's ready to admit it. But, um, that's, that's, you know, it's coming, uh, and probably isn't as far off as a lot of people think. So the relationships that we've always treasured, right? These, uh, they're all changing. So OPEC itself has decided it's now going to, it's going to cut preemptively, right? This is a recognition that the world is not as we knew it. Uh, the old order has changed. Uh, the ideas, whether they be energy intensity of GDP or what the, the marginal barrel costs and how you price it, uh, these are all built on the, the way things were when there's a lot of turbulence and flux. We've assumed that the commercialization cycle for new technology is as it was, but what does generative AI do to that? We don't know the answer to that, but it's a very deliberate goal to try to, to use AI to accelerate the diffusion of new competitive technologies. So I think a lot of humility is in order. And also the, the recognition that what we've been talking about for three decades at the conferences of parties uh, doesn't seem to be working the way it was supposed to. And there's going to have to be something else. These are all things that happened this year. So it may have seemed like a slow and boring year if all you were doing was looking for $200 a barrel. But uh, many things came up. Liam, I'm sure you've got a response to that. Uh, well, I um, I agree that uh, this certainly was a much more turbulent year than um, than perhaps it seemed. Just looking at the you know the the, the line of the oil price uh, moving along. Um, with regards to uh, geoengineering, I guess it's it's not an area that I'm uh, very familiar with. But the question that occurs to me is it it seems like that's an area that we really don't have our arms around in terms of what's potentially required in terms of cost. And I guess what what remains a mystery for me is we're in a world right now where we're still arguing ha over how the energy transition gets financed, and you know whether that's a mix of subsidies or carbon taxes, and then you know there's there's trade elements around that um, that come into play as well. Um, and now we're talking about, okay, well, if we're going to miss that, maybe what we need is some geoengineering. And that seems, to my mind, even less well understood <laughs> than, um, than, you know, developing alternative forms of energy. And so I, I, I question when we really start to grapple with what's involved in that, you know, what are the numbers going to be? And, and again, how are we going to apportion the cost of that? Because again, we're talking about planetary things that intersect with national economies and national priorities, which is obviously one of the big themes that's disrupting uh, COP at the moment. Having spent a little bit of time looking at it, I can help. I mean, if you think about the like the physical process of lifting some sort of small particle, maybe sulfur, maybe diamond dust, calcium carbonate. There's a few different candidates. You're not. You're talking about a cost which pales in comparison to the cost of imposed by energy transition, you know, tens of billions of dollars a year, say. The, the problem is that's just the physical lifting part <laughs> and not everything else, right? Like um, when it's a sin of commission instead of a mission, people definitely want more compensation. So say this actually makes the Sahel drier or you make winters in Russia worse um, through an active program, there's there's a lot more in incentive and knowledge about how to censure the active agent there than there is when it's sort of this like cumulative problem that humanity's been building up. It's been building up over a couple hundred years, 
that's the place where I think geoengineering is completely underexplored, right? Kevin talks about the prescriptive transition. You know, it's like I'm one of the things I kind of one of the concepts I developed in 2023 for myself was we we have a little too much model brain when it comes to imagining the energy future, and we need to kind of think a little bit more about. Uh, different scenarios or different ways of thinking about uncertainty because these, you know, you can throw a computer model at the energy system, it gives you an answer, but it's not clear that it's as informative as you want it to be. The, I think the biggest critique of the geoengineering idea at the moment is it's something that's entirely in model world, right? We, we, we don't really, one, have the engineering technology ready, though you can imagine a Manhattan scale project, Manhattan project scale initiative that would ready it. But we just don't, we haven't really thought about the implications, political, geopolitical, and economic, of a small group of actors influencing so much control over the climate. The disruptive thing you mentioned was the orders of magnitude between double-digit billions of dollars per year and single-digit trillions. If the green premium is what makes up those trillions, then eroding that green premium by taking away the urgency of the moment is a potential further catastrophe for your green green tech index. Um, But I I think that your points are all well taken and we shouldn't just count the cash cost of moving something when we're busy internalizing externalities everywhere else. We shouldn't ignore them in this context. All I will say about this, since I don't have your scientific background and no ability to talk about actually how to do it, is to look at recent precedent, which is that that very mysteriously uh, robust White House report from June 30th, a four-day weekend buried at night, uh, which, you know, no better time to release, uh, went at length into the discussion of what a governance structure should look like and the importance of having one in place. And you could say, well, surely we wouldn't do something like this without science and without governance. But how many shots have you got in your arm that happened without all the science and governance being done? Uh, we do things in emergencies, and COVID was an emergency. Uh, when we're willing to waive some rules. And so I think what we should ask is, what will the world look like in that that distant future? We're not talking about next year now. And so I'm ready to move back to that. But, you know, in that distant future, uh, when we decided it's an, it's an emergency, uh, I think maybe some of the rules we think we need to have might not be as necessary as we think, as we think they are. From cop to Keith Richards. Um, <clears throat> I think one, one, Big shout out to OSTP for what I'm putting together, what I thought is a thoughtful report, even if you don't agree with all of its conclusions. Um, also, any wealthy philanthropists who are interested in this, feel free to contact me because I think most of the questions really are, they're political and geopolitical, right? I think there's a whole basket of engineering challenges, but understanding the other side of the equation for geoengineering is probably really where we want to put a lot of effort. How are people going to respond? Um I just I was looking up while you were while you were speaking, Kevin. This uh, graph that was going around um, X, formerly Twitter, last week, um, showing the evolution of the carbon intensity of uh, economic activity, and it kind of you know the, it goes up and down, but it's basically been a straight line, indicating that it's you know for all the efforts we've spent on energy transition, it's been very hard to kind of curve that thing so that we get a faster one. Um, Liam, uh, you've been writing some really interesting stuff on the EV transition and how we should how, think about how that progressed in 2023 because you get two storylines. In, in China, it seems like EVs are just totally taking over the marketplace. In Europe, uh, you see a very high level of uptake as well. 
here in the US, 2023 looks like a record year for EV sales. And yet there's this sort of cloud hanging over the industry. What are the important things to to take with us as we enter into 2024? What are the important storylines and what what are you watching? So I think that dichotomy is probably the biggest um, storyline for this year. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you have uh, EV sales growth this year estimated at about uh, 38%. Um, and just to put it in uh, more manageable terms, um, you know, five years ago, I, I think I've got this right, one in 44 uh, vehicles, per new vehicles purchased worldwide was, uh, was an electric vehicle, either battery or plug-in hybrid. Um, and this year, it's more like one in seven. Um, so that that's clearly a, a you know a lot of progress on that front. China, as you mentioned, is far and away the leader. I think it just hit uh, the one million a month uh, mark. Here we're celebrating the fact that the U.S. has got to one million over the space of four quarters. Um, and uh, I think what's been interesting for me is that there have, however, been some setbacks, particularly here in the U.S. That, that led to a, a really kind of sour mood kind of developing around the industry, um, you know, just within the last few months. And just to name a few of them, one is Tesla is obviously uh, the leader here in terms of EVs and, and the biggest listed uh, vehicle company um, worldwide um, and uh, has very popular EV models, however, not popular enough. They were making more than they could sell. They were having to discount them, their margins uh, while still pretty healthy by the industry standards of collapse from what they were, you know, just a, a year or two ago. Um, and uh, we've seen uh, Detroit's efforts to get into electrification um, suffer some setbacks. I'm, I'm sort of reminded of the old joke about the restaurant with the, the food being terrible and even worse, the portion's quite small. Um, <laughs> And and you know as 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 they've struggled to make that transition from dependence on uh, legacy vehicles, high margin legacy vehicles, to these new vehicles, which you know lose money hand over fist, um, we've seen them scale back their ambitions, and I think that has led to a lot of the negative feeling around the industry. Now, I, I do want to point out, you know, it's it is kind of weird to see an industry growing. 38% in a year. And actually in the US, sales are up 50%. And for that industry to feel like it's failing or faltering in some way, and certainly the growth rates are still ahead of, and I'm relying on my colleagues at Bloomberg NEF here, still ahead of what would be required for a um, uh, an ambitious transition scenario. However, it does seem clear to me, and it was kind of epitomized by the launch of Tesla's recent vehicle, the Cybertruck, which by my guess, who knows, I'm assuming is going to be a fairly acquired taste. Uh, but it, I think it does bring home to us that we're reaching the end of maybe a, a, a kind of a first phase of EVs right. here in the US. And what's needed is a mass market model. Detroit was really supposed to be bringing those out fairly quickly, um, but they pushed them back. Tesla has a mysterious new model that we're yet to see. Um, but I think that is the key to unlocking the next stage of growth. So even though this can feel like, oh, it's just bad vibes, clearly we're reaching a point where some new product or products have to enter the market. 
so I don't do a lot of analysis in this space. So I, I but I'm a car enjoyer as a red blooded American. Um, uh, one thing that is bothering me, maybe you can help me understand it. When I see these product announcements, like the the Ford pickup or the Cybertruck, they come in and they seem like, oh man, feature rich, very affordable, right? And then when it actually gets launched, the you know it's twenty thousand, forty thousand dollars more than originally announced. Um, is that feature drift? Like what what is preventing this from sort of being like a new product category? Where you hear about these, you know, by example, this Chinese firms are making little four seater EVs that sell for the equivalent of like ten thousand dollars, and they can go two hundred fifty miles. And it's like you you know you would you would consider buying that for like a whole different set of purposes than you do a primary vehicle in the US. Like what's what's going on? Well, first of all, I hope you're not suggesting the auto industry sometimes over promises on what it's going to deliver. Uh, no, because no. that would never have happened in history. Um, I think part of so one thesis I have about what sets the US apart in in general is obviously uh the US is is very fond of its larger vehicles, its SUVs, its trucks. Um, and that's obviously partly consumer taste driven but it's also i think the industry the legacy industry figured out that um this was a market that was largely ex-growth and if it was going to squeeze uh, more juice from that market then it would have to sell higher end and, and tricked out uh models and those turned out to be hulking trucks with lots of uh uh you know gizmos on it and, and various add-ons and we're kind of reaching the end of that like the u.s market is now saturated with trucks and SUVs. And then the ironic thing is the obvious next growth area would be electrification. However, really hard to do that when you've conditioned everyone to drive something with the aerodynamics of a house brick and, you know, where you where people want 300 miles of range, even though they only really need that for, uh, you know, a few days of the year. Um, and I think that is going to be a real challenge for the industry because those trucks are very expensive and once you electrify them you stick in you know a, a 100 kilowatt hour battery they're super expensive right. um they don't have the towing range which again most people might not actually need but certainly want to feel like they can have it if, if they need it um and in some ways this is the most challenging thing in the in the u.s uh ev transition which is you you need a mindset shift you need a shift around What's the form factor that I really need to drive? And obviously the, the question that everyone keeps coming back to is, can you charge these things easily? Is public charging going to be ubiquitous and easy to use? And where's the minivan? There's no minivan. Well, we got the Cybertruck instead. <laughs> we were promised a minivan, but we got a Cybertruck. Kevin, this is one of the areas where US politics has been intensely focused over the last year. Um, the 30D tax credit, which was part of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, allows for up to $7,500 uh, to be rebated to the consumer buying an electric vehicle if the minerals in the battery and in the, and in the gear um, come from certain places and, and definitely exclude China's Chinese firms. We just saw the Treasury release a, um, a proposed rule for how uh, companies can generate, can build cars to, to get that credit. Um, do you there? There's sort of a tension about how that rule would be written, right? Would it be very permissive, thereby allowing 
the EVs to get onto the road faster and at higher volume, or would it be written strictly so that you know you could focus on the sort of security aspect of a diversified supply chain? How how are you thinking about that that ruling? Is is the Treasury making a choice one way or the other? Well, just first to to Liam's last point, uh, you know, why is it we have such big cars? Well, we're we're driven by policy. Those policies were accommodative of big cars. You got your fuel economy standards were in proportion to the vehicle footprint. And why is that? Because nobody gets reelected in America putting large people into small cars. Uh, it's simply not popular and it's not going to be. So EPA every year in their auto report talks about how horsepower has gone up, right? We want them big and fast. The Rhino you used in your article about the Cybertruck was a terrific example. But so now to this question, this question of decarbonization versus deglobalization. If you listen to President Biden when he goes to factories, over and over again talking to the manufacturing audience, he's talking about jobs and making things here, a value chain that starts and ends in America. The problem, of course, is that most of what we want for transition doesn't start and in a lot of cases doesn't even end here uh, and requires uh, a still very globalized world centered around the concentration of minerals and processing in China. So the 30D credit included a couple of features uh, that frankly look like they were intended to stop anything but domestically made cars, right? Domestically made batteries uh, constructed from domestically mined and processed critical minerals or those processed uh, in places that we favored, right. places where we had free trade agreements, however spurious they might be and without congressional approval, uh, which Congress has started to take exception to in its own right, making things still harder. And yet, the real risks here when we talk about political polarity changes are probably not risks of rescission. That law looks like it will probably stand in some form uh, because it's popular with all the red states that are manufacturing batteries, but reinterpretation. And the interpretations that have been taken have been actually kind of permissive uh, by deciding what is a mineral and what is a battery component, deciding what are the subcomponents of the battery components and how they divide and where the percentages where, where they wash out to, if you, if you have a couple removes from China, is it a foreign entity of concern as conceived in the 30D uh, sub, sub D sections that uh, were, were so, we were all wondering what it was going to say? And the answer is actually no. No, it's not, depending on where things were actually manufactured. Yes, manufactured in China, you've got a problem, but what if it's Chinese technology somewhere else? Well, quite lenient. Uh, those interpretations might not stand in a differently minded future administration looking at the same regulation and deciding to think about it differently. But this is yet another example where the, the administration is leaning at least a little bit, in our view, in favor of the decarbonization, getting green stuff deployed uh, quickly for transition purposes. And, and also, uh, really, I think, to try to put some numbers on the board to show that they've, they've hit a success with the IRA and the agenda. Yeah, I... <clears throat> I think that they're like my interpretation of the of the of the rule was that they were trying to have it a little bit both ways, right? Like if you sort of, as you say, kind of corporate structure yourself away from Chinese influence, then a globalized supply chain is completely fine and and should be supported. Um, and if you are sort of, <clears throat> how do you put this? The, like the thing I'm still trying to figure out is like how much friction this is going to actually develop for companies and potentially for consumers, right? Because they introduced this um, system by which like, like, do you really want to be in the business of tracking battery cells, right? Which get 
pound it all together to make a big lithium battery in a in a in an EV truck. Um, does that mean there's going to be classes of vehicles that are avail that credit where they they can earn the credit, and the same model might not be able to, depending on which factory it came out of or what battery it has. So that one needs to get leased, and dealers are going to be confused, consumers will be confused. It seems like it would be quite messy to me. I think it's already quite messy. It's been messy from the start. A lot of models being ruled out or partial credits. Some of the phase-outs we're seeing right now are happening not because of the foreign entity of concern provisions, but because the critical mineral and battery component requirements increase at 10 percentage points per annum. And so the the domestic content requirements are phasing them out already. So no, it's, it's, it's definitely messy, but it's also got leniencies built into it that wouldn't seem like leniencies if you saw them. Uh, what do you have to keep a ledger of batteries? You make it sound like a bad thing. Well, yeah, if you're not in the ledger of battery business, it seems like a hardship. But it also abstracts the specific materials away from the overall count of approved vehicles. So now what you're really being given credit for under the system that the DOE and the Treasury Department proposed was having something that you can allocate or abstract away uh, and count as having hit the numbers. Now, that's not the word in the law, mind you. The word is any. And so we'll have to see how that tests out if someone challenges it. But that is actually a flexibility mechanism, as cumbersome and bureaucratic as it might seem. You know, if they just let them trade those, you could have cap and trade for Chinese battery inputs. You could have a market anywhere you want to find one, uh, but uh, you better structure it well. Right. Um, It's always so much fun to talk to you, too. Um, Obviously, next year we have national elections in the U.S. We have elections in Europe. We have ongoing conflicts. But I'd love to hear from each of you. Well, you know, one or two, one or two things that you're you're watching in the coming year. For my own, for for my part, I I think the continued interaction of uh, climate policy, energy policy, and trade is one of the places where I'm going to be spending a lot of my time. You just you know the this year the EU US negotiations around um, what constitute clean steel and how they can work together there fell fell apart. Um, at, at the Conference of the Parties in, in um, Dubai, there's been a lot of debate around using trade mechanisms, but I think things like border adjustments are here to stay. I think climate clubs are coming and, and thinking through what those things will actually look like in practice is to me a very interesting thing to keep watching. I'll kick off with the thing that I began with, which is uh, the interaction of the cost of finance and what it means for the clean energy transition. I mean, we've just had numbers out of the New York Fed this morning um, with uh, with very low inflation expectations, um, and I think it will be interesting to see, you know, if we see an inflection point on rates, uh, what that might mean for the mood around uh, clean tech and, and valuations and, and project feasibility, uh, and even you know the financing of uh, of new vehicles. Um, one thing we didn't really talk about is uh, is natural gas, uh, but I've kind of got that on my radar. It, it, it's This may be a longer term thing, but it, it's interesting to me to think about what's going to happen to the gas market in the US um, in a world where you have on the one hand, um, OPEC effectively juicing supply of US natural gas um, associated with uh, oil production. On the other um, you know, a, a growing U.S. Uh, solar manufacturing business spurred on by uh, IRA incentives and um, and also solar deployment. Uh, we're going to see a gas market that is particularly on the power side, I think, transitioning at, at different speeds in different parts of the country from 
base load to load following. We're seeing signs of that in places like Texas and California. And and then as a follow-on from that, what does that mean if if the US ends up having even more potential export capacity for gas? Uh, where does it go um, and how does it get used geopolitically? Well, and how does that relate to the ongoing in, in process of like reindustrializing, right? We've got a ton of industrial policy in the US and a ton of foreign direct investment in factories, in AI. Um, how that affects energy planning over the next few years, I think is also super interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm with you on the carbon border adjustments and the broader question of climate trade convergence. It's here, it's happening, and it's a function of not just climate policy, but actually protectionism uh, driven by, among other things, fiscal stimulus, of which the IRA is an example. It gets very circular very fast. Uh, but I, I think continuing on that theme and also Liam's theme, uh, we're getting into a sort of a moment where we're looking at methane much more seriously. Uh, not just the rollout of the, the EPA's new source performance standards and emissions guidelines for states, which will be a, a three to five year process before it's all said and done, but the European Union deciding that it's going to get choosy about which gas it buys eventually, if not right away. They'll have uh, delegated acts that fill in the details that we never quite got from their, their methane regulation that they've already finalized. The world's starting to launch satellites to watch uh, from space and uh, the idea of super emitter detection, the idea of third parties getting actively involved uh, is going to start to create some, I think, new and interesting dynamics that we'll start to see next year. Moving back to Earth, if I can, just to close it out, I think it's safe to say that we are not yet united around a single uh, concept of energy uh, like we once were. The rocks uh, that you had in your state would be something you could drill for oil you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, it has gotten very ideologically polarized. It makes very little sense relative to the underlying questions uh, of what resource you have and what's economic or efficient. And yet people fight about it so well. The IEA and OPEC are fighting right now on a global scale in sort of a macrocosm of what's happening between Republicans and Democrats here in the U.S. So the question I will be watching uh, to see what happens, are we going to get more politicized on energy or less? Is there, is there a movement back towards a realistic world where Republicans can talk about clean energy seriously and, and emissions reductions uh, and actually do so in a way that doesn't immediately end their political careers. Can Democrats acknowledge uh, that oil production is still something on, upon which we very much depend and need uh, and uh, maybe have a, a more rational discussion? I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> well, hopefully, to the extent we can uh, have that more rational discussion, it continues to happen here at CSIS, and it continues to happen with you two gentlemen. Um, I hope we're, you guys have a great holiday season uh, and a happy new year. And uh, I hope to see you back here a year from now, having uh, learned another 12 months of, uh, well, having uh, gone through another 12 months and maybe being slightly wiser. <laughs> Thanks very much. For the having best us. we can hope for. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, colleagues, thank you so much. Um, we, we've enjoyed all the opportunities to engage with you over the course of the year, and we look forward to uh, 2024. Wish you a happy holiday season. This is Joseph Micah signing off. Thanks to Kevin and Liam for joining us again to close out the year. We look forward to keeping up with you in 2024. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at our website, csis.org. Follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy for more updates. And as always, thanks for listening.